I welcomed this officer into my home and he looked at my dog and said, well, she's very sweet, but I think that she looks too much like a pit bull to live in this city. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today, we welcome Katie and Anthony Barnett to discuss their fight against breed-specific legislation. If you're new to this podcast, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We save each other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. If you love dogs, you'll love Dog Words. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. A quick update on Spay and Neuter Kansas City, featured in episode 16 of this season of Dog Words. They have officially rebranded as Pet Resource Center of Kansas City. A link to their website, prckc.org, is in this episode's description. Thank you to everyone who's downloaded, subscribed, rated, and shared Dog Words. Now that you're a follower of the podcast, take the next step and become a participant. Let us know what you want to hear. Go to rosiefund.org and send suggestions for topics and guests. And everyone, please follow Rosie Fund on social media, especially the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel that offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and Shelter Dogs, including some exclusive content. We just uploaded video of KC Pet Project foster dog, Gregor, a big lovable Cane Corso that's available for adoption from KC Pet Project. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Today on Dog Words, we are pleased to welcome Katie and Anthony Barnett to the show. Greetings, everyone. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello. This is the first time that we've had two guests on the show at the same time. Oh, wow. So if this goes horribly wrong, <laughs> things go off the rails, it's, it's your fault somehow for agreeing to, to both be on together. Today we're going to talk about breed-specific legislation, BSL. For our listeners who don't know what that is, tell them what it is, and then I'll explain why we're talking to you about it. Breed-specific legislation isn't always necessarily legislation. Oftentimes, you see breed-specific housing policies, breed-specific public policy, and um, then, of course, your local ordinances that prohibit certain breeds of dogs or mixes of those breeds. Often, you have cities like Overland Park that say, you can't have a dog that looks like a pit bull And they define pit bull as three or four different breeds, usually the American Staffordshire Terrier, the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, the American Pit Bull Terrier, and sometimes even uh, Cane Corso or Presa Canario, which are Mastiff breeds. And then they say... But they can look scary. Yeah, anything that looks scary (laughs) and big. And then then they always have this catch-all clause at the bottom that says, or any mix of the aforementioned breeds that look predominantly of the aforementioned breeds or have predominant physical traits of the aforementioned breeds. A challenge with this conversation is going to be not latching on to every little thing that you just covered because everything you just went through raises a question. Like yeah. Everything you described just for a lot of reasons, doesn't make sense. Right. That if it has the characteristics of, as in a visual characteristic. So it's one thing if we're banning poisonous snakes, 
because they have deadly venom or any creature that has that characteristic of injecting you with deadly venom. Right. Not any snake that looks scary. Right. What would be the justification for banning a snake just because it looks scary? Yet it's perfectly acceptable in many municipalities and housing developments and apartment complexes and businesses to say, oh, if this is a breed or even an individual dog that has this scary look, it's, it, it's amazing how that gets through a HOA or a legislature or a city council. Right. And how it's enforced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems so, so arbitrary. It is. Arbitrary is the perfect word. And it becomes a self-defining element in that if if everybody hears that pit bulls are scary looking then what you get is any dog that scares me is a pit bull Mm -hmm. so you know you even get incidents where once you get involved like okay we've had this pit bull at large and it scared this lady whatever you get there and it's a german shepherd it's Mm -hmm. not even remotely close yeah that's just scary dog equals yeah 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 certainly a german shepherd or any specific breed but any mixed breed that isn't clearly exactly that breed standard often defaults to uh, to pit mix. Well, and even <laughs> seeing this, even if it, it doesn't have any of those breeds that Katie just listed, right? It's and, a mixed breed. It's a pit mix. Yeah, and here's what you're getting into. There's just there's so much depth to every single thing that comes up, but the the whole basis of this that this can even exist is this concept that every dog is a breed. And even that in and of itself is mm-hmm. not is not true. There's never been a beaver cleaver time where mom and dad sleep in separate beds and we all have purebred dogs that came from whatever and we're just a few generations removed from that. So every dog I see is definitely a mix of Two one breeds. purebred or another. There, purebred dogs have never represented more than maybe 40, get super generous and say 50% of the dogs that we have as pets. So at any given time, you're dealing with half or more throughout the entire history that have always been mutts and mixes and stuff like that. So just just statistically speaking, most dogs are mutts for mutts for mutts for mutts for mutts. And even the concept of breed didn't exist until about 150 years ago in the way that we understand it. Right, where you're bringing it for that specific breed standard that this very set list of... Physical attributes, function, fashion over function, mm-hmm. looking for... Looks, closing genetic pools, uh, all that was the sort of early 1900s, you know, shift during the Industrial Revolution when our sort of concept, the modern concept of dogs was born then and didn't exist before that, as we understand it now. How can you assign specific characteristics when, as you indicated, a purebred is so rare? So why are you making legislation or rules based on this is exactly what we expect from this dog? This is what's going to happen with this dog, but not any other kind of dog. It's only going to be this dog that we need to worry about. Because I understand if a landlord says, we don't want any dogs in our house because we don't want them tearing up the carpet. We don't want the dog smell. We don't want the noise of a barking dog. It's like, okay, you own the house. We get it. But to pick a particular breed and say, well, we don't want that breed. And it's not because, well, it sheds and we're the ones who have to clean up after it. It's just, no, because it looks scary. It's like, what do you actually know about this dog? Judging on the individual dog, just like you do a tenant. 
landlords and property if the tenant owners. doesn't, I guess what I'm saying, if the tenant doesn't tear up the house, then you have no reason to evict them. But if you say, yeah, you can rent this house, and then this tenant is always having loud parties and knocking out walls, and you're constantly having to come do repairs, well, then maybe you need to evict that tenant. Give the same benefit of the doubt to the dog. If this is a good dog, doesn't cause problems, isn't barking all the time, you don't have complaints, it's not tearing up the house, that's that dog. Sure. I mean, the problem with that kind of utopian view of everything is it comes down to insurance. They don't include or allow those breeds because their insurance company doesn't let them. There are a handful of insurance companies that insure commercial properties and then these big developments of apartment complexes, and they don't allow like 10 different breeds. And so maybe the property owner or the landlord is saying, I love dogs. I really do but I can't, my insurance won't let me. And then the conversation has to be, well, let's explore some new insurance options Mm -hmm. for you. And then that's a really big jump for a property owner to make. The idea that those property owners can just make a decision is it's much deeper than that. So making change is a lot harder. Well, and I would also posit that landlords absolutely do just look at a person and make the same mm-hmm. decision that they would just by looking at a, at and, a pit bull. <laughs> and we know that's yes. wrong. Yeah. Like they, people take shortcuts, mm-hmm. you know, and some, that tendency of ours to take shortcuts served a valuable evolutionary role. The guy mm-hmm. who sat around and said, you know, I'd like to philosophize on whether or not the rustling I hear in the jungle is a tiger. Mm-hmm. Should I listen to my fear? Should I think about it? He's dead. He didn't have any mm-hmm. kids. Because a tiger got him. (laughs) But the guy who said, you know, I heard something in the woods and I'm out. I'm gone. I don't want to find out what it is. I don't care. I'm going to make an assumption and I'm going to leave. That guy had more kids. You know, so that evolutionary tendency of ours to to make mental shortcuts Mm -hmm. served a purpose. And there are times where we should trust our instincts. But in modern culture, as modern humans, it's important for us to be able to use our higher brain functions to be able to sit and say, you know, my instincts tell me this is kind of scary, but let's let's sit down and think about it and let's look at it and figure out what's really going on. For many of us, we haven't learned to recognize the difference between a situation where there's time to breathe and there, when there isn't. So that rustling, you don't even have time to take a breath. You need to decide now. But when you're deciding whether or not to rent to a person or allow a dog onto your property, 99.9% of the time, there's space for you to take a breath and back off of whatever initial reaction you had and make an informed decision about the person, the dog. Well, I think you're kind of describing one of the main forces that we have to contend with is once hysteria grows to a certain level, and once the fanatics, the anti-pitbull, like sort of cult fanatic people get involved and they're able to drum things up enough, it, mm-hmm. it gives the illusion that you don't have time to sit and think it makes people feel that way mm-hmm. you know, we have to hurry up and get all these dogs out of our community or or whatever you know that's that's the sort of force that that becomes when all the hysteria gets drummed up in a community yeah because yeah, there one person gets bit right yeah right. because as we sit here and talk they're all frothing at their gate ready to leap out of the yard and go at our throats right and that i mean that's that's what they do they sell fear they sow fear they mm-hmm. sell fear they let fear addicts find what they're looking for, you know. And, and you and only then, have to tell one anecdote, true or not. 
right. only one anecdote, right. and that has more weight for most people than all your facts and figures and bar charts and mm-hmm. veterinarians' testimony and animal behavioralists. Mm-hmm. That doesn't matter because I know what I know. I know my truth, and my truth is this one story that is probably apocryphal is all I need to know about pit bulls. Well, and they grow. In in Eudora, their breed-specific stuff was based on a dog attack that has turned into, since then, a dog attack by a pit bull that, that was a fatality. And it was not a fatality, and it was not by a pit bull. A woman was attacked by, I think, two Rottweilers, and she later died of cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's just turned into, it was a pit bull attack, and she died. And that's why they have a pit bull ban in Eudora. Had. For clarity, <laughs> they repealed their pit bull ban in 2018. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You two apparently know a little bit about breed-specific legislation. <laughs> we haven't even touched on why I'm talking to you about it. Where did you get your start in uh, wanting to address this issue? Well, in uh, 2006, I believe, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and one of my friends and I went down to New Orleans and Mississippi and we volunteered at one of the animal shelters there. We were there for almost a week and when we were getting ready to leave, the shelter volunteers and staff said, you know, no one's coming for these dogs and if you want to take one, you can. And, you know, we'll keep in touch with you, microchip her and everything. And I did. And it turns out that she looked like a pit bull, according to a Johnson County animal control officer. And so I was sitting in my apartment one day and an animal control officer knocked on my door. And it was pretty scary because he looked like a police officer. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, I heard you have a pit bull in your house. And I said, well, I don't. I don't know what kind of dog I have, but you're welcome to come in and meet her, you know? And then I welcomed this officer into my home and he looked at my dog and said, well, she's very sweet, but I think that she looks too much like a pit bull to live in this city. And so I moved. I had the means and the ability to move out of the city to save my dog. Otherwise they were going to take her. And so I decided that I wanted to go to law school and advocate for families who are in the same situation as me and dogs like mine. And in between that incident and law school, there is, or there, I think they're still active. Kansas city dog advocates was a group of animal lovers and uh, community activists who wanted to address the breed specific legislation problem and other problems, I think within the city metro area. And so that's how I met Anthony. Your turn, Anthony. (laughs) I just um, got a dog that turned out to be a pit bull. I wasn't really savvy in any of the issues. And I had had a dog through my parents when I lived, you know, at home. But since I had left for college and then moved out on my own, I wasn't like a dog person, really. I liked him. I just didn't have a dog. And I ended up getting a dog, uh, Peanut, who just needed to be adopted. And then right around that time was this sort of the early 2000s wave of pit bull hysteria. And I just have almost a crippling sense of empathy. <laughs> it just ate me up the thought of, of other people having to give up their dogs or that people weren't being treated fairly. And so I just sort of injected myself into the 
process. I was in the stages of sort of uh, the early stages of, of the what's become kind of my expert field working with dogs. You know, I just bought a doggy daycare and was on the the verge of, of starting my own nonprofit centered around these issues. And, and um, I just injected myself into the process in Kansas city and decided to start advocating. And that's when I hooked up with the Kansas city dog advocates and, just been learning and growing and activist in that field since since then. Interestingly, I will add, Kansas City Dog Advocates produces some pretty stellar people in the Kansas City area for a Kansas City Pet Project. Brent and Michelle, Brent Tolner and Michelle Davis were also Kansas City Dog Advocates members, and they founded KC Pet Project. I know so many uh, friends across the country who are very jealous of what we have with Casey Pet Project. And that was before we had the facility right. mm-hmm. that we have now. They were just that's when it was in the dungeon. Yeah, they were <laughs> amazed just by the concept of we're going to treat dogs as they deserve to be treated. We're going to do our best to take care of them, find them good homes, not euthanize them because they're an inconvenience and to end its suffering, which is painful enough to do, it's just unfathomable to me to take that step when there is a path forward for that dog, when there's people out there who would give it a home, even a temporary home, or when there's space in a shelter, and it's sad when there's no space in a shelter, and that the solution is, well, we need to get more shelter space, and we need to figure out why are we getting all these dogs in a shelter? Maybe we should do something about the environment that creates this problem instead of solving it by killing dogs. One of the problems we can solve is allowing dogs to live in more places. Sure, that's one step. <laughs> doesn't that seem like such a simple <laughs> solution? It And it doesn't cost anything. It's not like we need a government grant, we need to raise a tax. No, you just need to tell people, yeah, you can have a dog. Right. I mean, imagine all those dogs being euthanized in communities throughout the country, not because they didn't have a home, but because they looked a certain way and they were taken from a family who loved them and treated them as part of their family and they were euthanized simply because of the way that they looked. Mm. And that animal control officer who was spending time at your home telling you that your dog looks too dangerous to live in their community is not out catching a stray dog that's going to get hit by a car. Or a stray dog that's terrorizing a neighborhood Mm -hmm. or is a nuisance. There are valuable tasks that an animal control officer could be doing instead of wasting time talking to a responsible dog owner with a wonderful dog. Correct. So now we have the two of you taking up the call to (laughs) make this world a better place for dogs, which I feel makes it a better place for humans as well. What are some of the big tasks that you've taken on? (laughs) They look at each other where to start. We've sort of weathered. There was a storm of anti-pitbull hysteria following two or three local attacks that ended in fatalities all in short sequence of each other. And then it was sort of borne out. There's more history of that in some of the cities like Overland Park. But there, the hysteria was really driven by what had happened in Independence, Missouri. And when we got involved, it was more to minimize the damage 
from that series of things. And we kept it, I, I don't remember the numbers, but of maybe 20 communities who proposed legislations, I think just two or three of them where they passed. There was also some that already had them from the, the sort of first wave of hysteria in the mid 80s. Like Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Shawnee, Kansas, Kansas Overland, yeah. and Overland Park, Kansas. They already had some form of legislation mm-hmm. restricting breeds. And then that re-upped enforcement. And in Overland Park, you know, they just had restrictions. But what Anthony's talking about, that hysteria. And, you know, I, I won't just say it's hysteria. There were two dog attacks. One was a fatal dog attack on a woman named Jimmy Mae McConnell in Kansas City, Kansas, and it was horrific. If you look at the incident itself, there were two dogs involved. One looked like a pit bull and one was a mixed breed dog. But the biggest part of it is that there was a history of animal control being called on that property for the mistreatment of the dogs. There was a history of Miss McConnell and her family calling animal control saying these dogs are scaring me these dogs are terrorizing our neighborhood they're not well cared for and those calls were largely ignored responded to and in a very minimal way I don't want to minimize what what happened there because it's it's critical to really drilling deep into achieving a safer and humane community for the metro area but you don't prevent dog attacks by targeting breeds you gave a rather detailed explanation of what you led off with was a woman died from a dog attack the easiest way to solve that problem is ban the kind of dogs that attacked her but then you went on to describe the problem, and the problem wasn't as simple as it sounded in the initial telling. But people don't want to go to that level of understanding. It's, I just want, don't blather at me with all that facts and figures. I just want this solved. Fix it. And if the solution means you have to engage with someone who is an irresponsible dog owner, that's much more complicated because, okay, how do you um, identify what's irresponsible dog ownership? How do you resolve a dispute between neighbors? That starts getting complicated. But that's what could have solved that situation before a fatality. You're not going to eliminate the problem by solving the wrong problem. Right. And, you know, the thing about solving that problem, though, is it does take grants. It does take enhanced training. It takes good leadership. And those are much more complex and they require a lot more effort, as you said. And so, yeah, of course, the the easiest thing is to say, let's be in the dogs that look like that. Well, and not just acknowledging that a problem is complex, which which is it, it is the issue. People don't want to deal with a complex problem. They want a simple problem and a simple solution. But especially in a situation like Miss McConnell, you have to admit... Uh, layers and layers and layers of failings, social Mm -hmm. failings, municipal failings. Like there's a preventable death from a woman who had, it doesn't matter, I guess, if you, even if nobody cares about you, a life that mattered with people that care about Mm -hmm. her and the community failed her from sort of more complex, harder to nail down social failings Mm -hmm. all the way up through just how the city was functioning and how it handled the 
health and safety of its community members. And a lot of people don't want to face failing. They don't want to blame it on something else yeah. and just move on. This is a tragic symptom of a complex problem of failing on the part of that community or our society that does need to be addressed. But if you won't face what the issue is, you're not going to resolve the issue. You're just going to create other issues. Yeah. I just think that's a real important part of moving forward and reconciliation. I mean, even down to, you know, in my business, I'm a business owner. My staff does something that, that they know they weren't supposed to do. I didn't train them that way. And, and I have to answer to a customer. The first thing I have to do is this was my responsibility. I failed you. Here's how I'm going to fix it. You know, there has to be an act of contrition mm-hmm. in my mind to a customer to say, this should not have happened. It was my fault. And I'm responsible, even though I wasn't there. I'm responsible. You're ultimately responsible and you take that responsibility in the situation with that tragic death. The people who are responsible either don't want to or are unwilling or even unaware of their responsibility. Yeah. So instead of saying this is our responsibility to help keep you safe, to to reduce unnecessary risk Mm -hmm. in your community, it's our fault and we're going to take the time to get better. And we're going to address this. It was, well, you know, the short-haired dog with big head. Just ban him mm-hmm. and move on. I guess the the thing to add is they were already banned in Kansas City. Yeah, Kansas. there was already a ban in place, and that still happened. You know, so it obviously didn't do anything to help her. The city did not address an issue with an irresponsible owner, and so there's an owner who had a responsibility. There is an enforcement community that had a responsibility there's a leadership that should have trained the enforcement had proper code that did not take responsibility or act correctly or appropriately and just as community culpability there were many people who probably saw these problems and didn't step forward to take action which is what the two of you and your organization are doing and to bring it full circle to your question Fast forward 10 years from when that happened, or eight maybe, Kansas City, Kansas engaged with my law firm, and I was able to assist the community leadership and staff in developing a comprehensive animal code, in developing training at the police academy for animal control officers, and the unified government stepped up in a big way and hired an excellent animal control director. And I think they changed their name to Animal Services. So it's Kansas City, Kansas Animal Services. They have a new director. They receive training at the academy that is put on by myself and several uh, subject matter experts. And they've changed their animal code and two years ago repealed their breed-specific legislation. So we weathered this storm. Right, uh, in the early 2000s. And then specifically when Katie and I started, uh, well, dating and working together on this issue, we started to work through our own nonprofit and then sort of the all the world of dog rescues and everything going on. Decided we wanted to focus on pit bulls and we wanted to focus specifically on abused pit bulls, which put us in the realm of dog fighting, dealing with dog fighting and some of the more severe abuse cases. And so we helped law enforcement around Kansas and Missouri, Texas, Mississippi. I'm trying to think. I think that covers most of it. But anyway, after we were getting kind of neck deep in that, which there really weren't very many organizations at the time who would deal with fighting dogs and think of them as victims rather than as monsters, Michael Vick happened. 
really the turning point of sort of public perception with pit bulls. Like I would say it was very slowly shifting away from pit bulls or monsters and we need to ban them. And that really accelerated that shift where once everybody saw his dogs and saw the work that best friends did with them and bad rap. Um, and that really shifted public perception and it got bigger organizations involved in dealing with dog fighting cases uh, which they didn't even have a capacity really before or the desire to do it. A lot of people prior to that thought of, okay, this is dog fighting is either an urban myth or there's like some dog fighting ring on a Caribbean island that has an unstable government. And But yeah, there's not dog fighting rings. There's not any sort of substantial. I mean, that's just so barbaric. But then to see, no, this is a, there's millions of dollars being spent on breeding dogs, fighting dogs, betting on dogs. Transporting them. Across state lines. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) nobody knew that was even happening. I mean, nobody. I did not know. It was not common (laughs) knowledge that you would breed and move dogs from training sites and, and, you know, stuff like that. And those, those large organizations, you know, it was bad rap, a couple individual rescuers and uh, Best Friends Animal Society that stepped up for those Michael Vick dogs. When there were larger other larger organizations who said those dogs cannot be rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. Michael Vick happens. National organizations get into it. Public attitudes start shifting. And we all kind of moved in our directions. You know, I, I found... There were other organizations that could fill that role that I felt good about, and I had other interests with the human-animal bond that I wanted to pursue. And then we shifted from being on defense to looking at the chessboard for what it was and starting to play the long game to get better conditions for dogs and for people in their communities. We're here when communities want to work with us, and there's been a lot of uh, updating of animal ordinances, a lot of bans have been repealed, a lot, just a lot of that has happened. The, the momentum is clearly in that direction at this point, which is just kind of like where we're at now. Anything specific that you want to make sure our listeners know about that's happening right now that either they can get involved in by taking action or making a contribution or putting up a yard sign depending on where they live? Recently, Prairie Village, Kansas, repealed their breed-specific ordinance, and that only leaves Overland Park, Kansas, and Leewood, Kansas. There's, like, really super small cities like, I think, Westwood Hills or something like that, kind of around the Prairie Village area, the Mm -hmm. northeast Johnson County area, that have BSL. But the two big cities that are left are Leewood and Overland Park. And then on the Missouri side, there's still Independence, Missouri. If you want to get involved, I know the ASPCA is working really hard in Missouri and specifically Independence, Missouri. If people are interested, they can contact the state director for the ASPCA and get involved that way. And then I think, you know, it's just a small group of people in Leewood and Overland Park who are trying to work with city council, which, you know, has stalled. The momentum was pretty big between Kansas City, Kansas repealing and Prairie Village repealing their BSL. And then COVID. People got distracted by a plague. Yeah, it's weird. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. This is dog stuff is very important. 
And so I think that effort will be ramping up here soon and they can pay attention to social media as well as Great Plains SPCA. We'll probably have some information about Overland Park soon. What's next for Katie and Anthony? My areas of interest with BSL, we're always kind of more focused on the people that were affected by it and in the bond, the human animal bond that, that was interrupted by it. And I've sort of moved in that direction of continuing to be passionate about the human canine bond. And through that work, we have started the Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center, which is a mental health model that's based around humans and dogs working together towards healing. Right now we have the the animal-assisted therapy model, which is where people have uh, service dogs or like uh, two of my dogs are therapy dogs and we go to the VA every week well before the plague we did we went every week and we teach a class there sort of based around these ideas and the symbiotic behavioral treatment center puts people and dogs together on a healing path so instead of a dog having its role as a as a tool or as a something to help a person in need it's a dog in need and a person in need and they walk parallel and converging paths of of behavior and and mental health work together and and that's sort of what we're working towards right now and I, I see myself in the long run circling back to some of the social issues that I thought was important that we were working on through our other nonprofit game dog guardian but right now our focus is the center yeah and the website for that is symbioticbtc.org right so yeah and, and again then- I'll link that in the description so listeners you don't have to write that down or memorize it just click through <laughs> And then I think uh, I'm just going to continue to work for the animal shelters in Kansas City and help them with legislative and policy issues that impact the work that they do in saving the animals in their community. I want to thank both of you for making this a priority to help the world be a better place for people and dogs and the exponential benefit of serving both species helps everyone. It makes the world a better place. And also thanking you for allowing me to come to your home and conduct this interview and meet Leonidas, who is just (laughs) the biggest sweetheart. And uh, I'm hoping that you can supply me a couple of pictures that we will feature Leonidas when we promote this on social media and thumbnail this interview. So (laughs) thank you to Katie and Anthony Barnett and the handsome and noble Leonidas. Thank you. Thanks (laughs) for having us. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you again to Katie and Anthony Barnett for the work they do and for taking time to join the podcast. There's so much more to discuss. We'll have Anthony back soon to discuss the socioeconomic underpinnings of breed restrictions in housing. Links to the websites referenced in our interview can be found in this episode's description, including Katie's law firm, Barnett Law Office, Anthony's Doggy Daycare, Home Sweet Home Dog Resort, the Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center, Game Dog Guardian, and Three-Legged Dog Leonidas' Facebook page. Be sure to catch the next episode of Dog Words. We'll be talking to Darcy Gokin about her unusual pet fosters. I also want to thank alternative string duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks, for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Learn more about The Wires at thewires.info and download their music on iTunes. 
Also, check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play the fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. If you haven't already checked out The Goobies, a webcomic for dog lovers by past guest Megan Levins, a link to her Patreon page is in the episode description. Support Rosie Fund by following us on social media, and please subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel. You can also support Rosie Fund's mission of helping senior and harder-to-adopt dogs by choosing Rosie Fund as your charity with Amazon Smile. It costs you nothing. Amazon has money to give to charities and wants your help identifying worthy causes. As always, please download, subscribe, rate, and share Dog Words. This helps us with sponsorships. Then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions at rosiefund.org and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening, and remember, we save each other.